Hello and welcome to the Pint Talks podcast, where two old friends chat about the world over a pint. What's the interplay between social media and our society? How it affects our thinking, our decision making and our politics? And how it helps individuals reach out into the world? More on this in this episode of Pine Talks. Well, hi, everyone. So today we're going to talk about social media. I guess first thing will be good to clarify. What do we mean by social media? What is considered social media these days? It's like, a, I guess it started with MySpace, Facebook. Those were kind of like the big ones in the beginning. And now it's this huge thing where you have all kinds of, I would say even there's a kind of a mix between content platforms and social media platforms. And, you know, you can think of something like YouTube being much more of a content platform where you have all these videos and all this content. Uh, there's still social elements to it, but I would say it's not that big. While Twitter is a more of a pure social media where you just have people talk to each other, connect to each other, and uh, yell at each other. Yeah, that, that, that is a common pastime in Twitter, I'd say. Actually, I didn't know how they talk about this, but do you know how they refer to Twitter in, in terms of a, the type of platform it is? No, not really. It's a microblogging platform. Oh, yeah. Okay, I've heard that. Yeah, I found it so hilarious. That's it's kind of funny, yeah. yeah. Uh, so there's quite a few nowadays. There's TikTok that started as a dance video, short video platform. And it continues to be one as well. Continues to be, but now it's, I think it's it's growing to be something weird. Mm. Like It's just a lot of content going on. It's, mm. it's becoming much more generalized, I think. I was looking at it when preparing for this and for some other projects. And it looks like the early days of YouTube and Vine. That's what TikTok looks to me. It looks sort of like the Wild West that people are just doing random stuff. Yeah, it definitely looks wild. I don't use it because I'm not a teenager. But yeah, okay, boomer. <laughs> I'm not a boomer. But I mean, they're definitely growing a lot. So I think with, with all of these pretty much, when they grow more, they become kind of like uh, just spread out more. You see bigger players kind of like start going into it a little, a little more serious. The content starts to getting shaped up. It might be good to just say which, when we talk about social media, what platforms exactly we're thinking about. Sure, yeah. We'll talk about a bunch of them. Definitely Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We'll try to, I guess, mention which ones specifically as, as we talk, but generally think of it as the whole, as, as this whole kind of an internet phenomena. But that includes Snapchat and TikTok and whatnot. But obviously they all have their nuances, so some things are definitely not applicable to all of them. Yeah, I would classify YouTube and maybe even TikTok as a little bit different because they are they're sort of classified as social media. But I think of YouTube more as a content platform and the interaction is very different than, for example, on Facebook or on Twitter. So usually in my discussion, I, I kind of tend to think about YouTube differently than those others. Yeah, I think that's fair. The next question I think would be interesting is what is our personal experience with social media? Like what what do we use and what are what do we use it for? So nowadays I use hmm, what do I use? Well I use Facebook, which is for connecting with old friends, connecting with new friends, just like having friends and uh, talking to them and mostly like lurking and like checking out what people are doing. Uh, I guess I use the messenger a lot. So just to chat with people, no matter what their phone is or where in the world they, they live in, I think that's been kind of useful. 
I would say Facebook a lot. Instagram, again, lurking, wasting my time, like scrolling infinitely. And yeah, wasting more time on Instagram. I would say that's been fun too. Uh, <laughs> I use LinkedIn a lot, which is, it's a weird one. It's kind of like, um, to some extent, it's it's a content platform, although not a very powerful one for content purposes. It's kind of a new content platform, I would say. And then it is about connecting professionally i guess but also the i don't know there's an aspect of it that's kind of just pure like job applications and recruiting kind of thing which is totally outside of the in my view the social media realm so it's kind of a weird hybrid of this professional related stuff with some social to it i there are some platforms like that that are specialist social media so for a particular section of the population for example, there is what's called ResearchGate, which is for scientists. And it's very similar. It's also a type of social media, which is, you know, you can put papers on, you can put your CV on, etc. In this, in scientific circles, where you, which one you should use more, they kind of talk about if you are, if you want to be in academia, you should use ResearchGate more. And if you are in, if you want to go into industry, you should lo- use LinkedIn more. Uh, just depending on the type of person that you well, research gate sounds like a like a scandal like watergate you know a how they add bit, gate yeah. nowadays <laughs> it sounds a little like bit some... yeah but but it is a legitimate website we have one too the, in the since i work in it there's one called blind which is pretty <laughs> it's pretty brutal it's a uh, it's this anonymous social network and people talk a lot about their salaries and i would say it's super dominated by tech companies and particularly like Bay Area tech companies. And so people just like talk about their salaries and there's all kinds of topics, like it could be wellness, could be like all kinds of topics, but it's, it's I would say there's a lot of salary stuff and kind of like who's overpaid, who's underpaid, like what's happening with this company? Is it good to work? I'll yeah, say that's I've, my like sector specific social network. I've heard of Blind always when there's scandals because it's anonymous and it's I, I think it's encrypted as well. So you can't really find who it is. And all I've heard about it is that people can be very brutal on there. It is off limits. I mean, that's been one thing that we see with social media, right? Where you see these burner accounts and, you know, it's kind of these accounts where someone is just anonymous or like trying to conceal their identity and being pretty rough. They could be very uh, blunt or honest and, and kind of like, I think Twitter's kind of become famous for that. But I would say blind is at a different dimension. Like, I think people are so mean on Blind. It's like, come on. I mean, like, it's pretty brutal, I'll say. Blind is, I think, the roughest one I've seen. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's what I've heard about as well. But being being rougher than Twitter is is definitely a notch on the old belt, you know? Right. I think Blind's also funny because there's this element of bragging or flexing, Mm. how they used to call it in Blind. Like, people are flexing a lot since it's, like, about salaries and stuff. And so... Those people get get uh, a nice response usually from the community, <laughs> the blind way. A lot of the stories that I've heard about blind is somebody asking, oh, I'm in this tech company, I'm doing this, I'm getting this amount of money, and it's like 120, 130,000 a year or something like that. And uh, people going, oh, how dare you flex about this here you know there's people who get 60k 50k for the same job you're such an asshole yeah for sure yeah that's like half the poster about that (laughs) pretty much the same conversation with different numbers yeah yeah so obviously social media has become and the reason why we want to talk about it is become this 
huge force in society. I think Facebook was started in 2004. You know, that, that became the first really like ubiquitous social media network. And, and, and really after that, it's, they've, it's, it's been the, the era of social media, I would say. And they've, they've really taken over in so many regards. They're like all over the place. What do you think about it overall? I mean, like, let, let's start with the positives. What would you say has, has social media done to society in a positive way? For society in particular, I would say that the democratization of outreach for companies and for individual entrepreneurs and easy way to connect with your audience for the same people. I think that is society-wide, that's the, the biggest positive for me. Whereas before you had to maybe get, you know, an ad in the local paper, maybe even an ad on TV if you had so much money. Nowadays, it costs next to nothing to connect with people like that, so long as you understand how the algorithms work. Yeah, it's definitely enabled businesses to connect their audience, even individuals that were kind of like a solopreneurs or very yeah. small businesses. It's definitely opened a certain business opportunities and certain doors for a lot of people. If you go back to 20, 2005, even 2010, even to be an influencer did not exist. You couldn't just go around. What are you going to do for a job, son or daughter or whatever? Oh, I'm going to go around taking pictures of myself and I'm going to promote companies. Yeah, you pretty much had to be a legit celebrity to be able to do that. And it was still not not nearly as powerful. But that's, I guess, the closest we had to it was like the celebrities that we know from movies or whatever, singing and all that. Whereas a lot of the time now, I think the big influencers, the charismatic ones can have more power than Hollywood celebrities in this more swaying society is what I mean. Because I think people can get, individuals can get better, a feeling of a better relationship, sort of a closer relationships with them. Whereas celebrities are, oh, they're, they're over there, they're far away. Whereas influencers, you can chat to them on Facebook, for example, or on Instagram, and they can respond to your post and you feel so special and you get this huge hit of dopamine. No, it's interesting. I was just, uh, so I just watched a, a basketball game and I, I wanted to hear reviews about it. I wanted to hear some comments about it. I was kind of passionate about it. So on Saturday, I couldn't really, there wasn't really much I could find that was, you know, like over the weekend, like professionally kind of recorded stuff, but the internet does not stop. Like there's always videos coming out 24-7. So the internet was kind of like the social media, in this case, YouTube, was already full of content where I could like look into it. That's kind of one of the interesting ways that that works is it's always it's 24-7. So there's no such strict structure kind of like, oh, you watch a channel. Like we grew up in the TV generation. It's an exact, if you want to watch a specific show, it's exactly at the time that they show it, at the channels that they show it. It's totally controlled. And now we kind of have a bit more freedom, I think. True, yeah. If you count YouTube, it's it's a little bit different as well because I think a lot of people nowadays at work, for example, you do something, you don't need to pay a lot of attention and then put you put a video on or you put you know, a series on. And that's, I certainly do that. If we count YouTube as a social media, that's the social media I consume the most by far. It's not unheard of for me to have watched a comedic or a video from a, con- a content creator that I like several times not in the same day but over a year two years three years it's almost like a favorite episode of a tv show sure yeah you have everything on demand yeah Yeah, i've done it as well definitely and i think in a lot of ways those can be much funnier and much better than actual episodes of tv shows 
because it's less structured. It's more, and I hate the word authentic, but it does feel more authentic and organic. So I think you can forgive a lot of the flaws in it a lot more. Yeah, I think social media has enabled us to be more authentic. In some sense, I think society, consciously or not, is, is craving for that right now. Because uh, essentially, you know, currently the over-commercialization, the over-managing of, of, of TV and, you know, everything was scripted. Everything was just like felt fake. And I almost feel like now there's this movement towards the more authentic, the more real things. A lot of the podcasts, like for example, the the Joe Rogan podcast, which is, you know, it's a content play, but really distributed through the internet, you know, outside of these big networks. You know, it's really like a long format. It's much more authentic and not scripted than typical, I don't know, maybe like a talk show or something where you interview them. So I feel like a lot of that is is, is happening in social media. Like people are just more trying to be at least, at least on the surface, I guess, more real, more authentic, less scripted. Yeah, I think we're going a little bit in a direction that I don't necessarily want to go in because I feel like that's a topic all of its own. The last thing maybe that I want to say is just to comment on your point. A major difference, if you include podcasts and if you include YouTube in in this uh, definition of social media, I would say the podcast or the long form conversation rather than the short TV interview is a very can be a very positive thing for society in general because Joe Rogan is a good example of this where he can have on specialists in a certain area and talk to them and ask them questions for two, three hours in a very unstructured, very organic way, which in an interview for TV is not possible. And I think that's more interesting because you can get more different points of view and more details. Right. I mean, it could be an interesting medium. I mean, it's very hard to define it, right? Even as we start this conversation, as we're going through this, I don't necessarily consider podcasts themselves to be social media, but I do consume podcasts on social media platforms. You know, it's almost like this. there's this blend. The difference between a content platform and social media platform is is, is really kind of gray. It's hard to tell where one starts and where the other one ends because social media at its core today is really based on kind of getting people around certain content, whether it's a micro blog um, or, or if it's an image, you know, maybe a photograph, maybe it's a some sort of a video. I feel like still there, there seems to be some sort of a medium that people kind of get organized around and whether they comment about it or yeah. know, react to it or something. Just to sum up what we're talking about is the amount of information that we can consume nowadays due to social media and distribution through social media is huge. And be it entertainment or just pictures or what, what your friends do. There's a ton of people who can spend probably hours on be it Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or Pinterest and any of those social medias. And I think this is sort of a dual-edged sword where on the one side, it's great because you can have access to a lot more information. But on the other side, you can also bury yourself in the avalanche of just raw data all the time, everywhere. It can be overwhelming almost. For sure, yeah. It, it feels like you're constantly multitasking or you're constantly bombarded with a lot of information. And every piece of info, whether it's maybe like a video you watch, you see immediately the recommended videos, you see the comments by other people. It, it, it's almost like one one piece of content leads to the other very naturally on social media. It's uh, it's part of the design of how these, these networks are built. Yeah, we can talk about that in a little bit. However, now I would like to go with another positive, which is 
which I've jogged down during my when I was thinking about this, which was to keep in touch with friends and and or just acquaintances in some cases. When we talk about Facebook, that's the usability that I use most about it. In terms of Facebook specifically, yes. Yeah, I would say I, I do the same with Facebook. It's mostly about keeping up with friends. Um, well, okay, let me just clarify. I, in general, don't use social media or try not to. The only thing that I occasionally use is Facebook um, because I've been on Facebook since 2007. So I just have a lot of people on there and I mostly use the chat function of it. Like occasionally, for example, my the management company of the apartment complex that I live has Facebook page, a Facebook page and they use it for news, etc. So that is sometimes I get in. I don't necessarily use Instagram or any of the others other than YouTube. You're a dinosaur. I'm just uh, <laughs> awkward that way. Definitely don't use Twitter. I go on Twitter, but I don't. I don't usually tweet much. Uh, I do retweet stuff. Actually, we use Twitter for work more more than anything else. So it, it's become like a good way to since you know the, the concept of followers actually makes a lot of sense for like company accounts or like product pages. Uh, kind of like mentioned about your apartment complex management. Like it's we just use Twitter's account, for example, for some updates that we communicate yeah. to our audience. And so I kind of use it through that quite a bit to just uh, you know with the posts that we generate. Yeah. But for personal I, use, I don't I don't use it much. I think that's a that's one of the other things that is pretty decent about social media is um easy communication with a specific group of people. So if you're a gym for example and you commu- you want to communicate with your members very quickly just like oh follow us on Facebook for that or you're a podcast for example and you want to uh, com- uh, communicate with your listeners very easily you say well just follow us on all our social media you can find them in the description. Totally yeah and you might say we're at Pint Talks everywhere. For example, <laughs> yeah. Very unique name, very easy to find. For sure, yeah. So, yeah, connecting businesses and, and, and potential customers or users, that's definitely been great on social media. For sure, it's worked both well for businesses as well for individuals. Because if you think about how it used to be, is you need to either have much less reach. So I remember when I was young, there used to be these newspapers which are free, but they're just ads, like basically just ads. And they're just local companies posting ads, et cetera. And they may be a city, maybe maybe it's throughout a province or something or a state, but not really internationally, not even nationally usually. Or the other right. way was TV ads, which cost an arm and a leg. So it's really... Yeah, but you can also never go global truly, right? Now, if you have great content that people want to follow for whatever reason or you know, whether it's a microblog or whatever it is. And through social media, you can actually reach people all over the world, uh, potentially. Although you compete with all the other people trying to reach those same yeah. <laughs> those same folks, but you still have the opportunity at least. It but felt like before have, it was like, there's no chance for that. They don't have as unique name as us, Ant Pine Talks, right? I guess. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have no shame. As shameless, yeah. That's I can confirm that. <laughs> he has no shame whatsoever. Um, so as we're thinking about the positives still, I think another one we should definitely mention is if you feel perhaps a little disconnected from your immediate circle or misunderstood or that you're different, I think social media is one place where you can find others like you, where you can potentially find like a, a place of belonging 
you just can, you can find like-minded people and no, i think that's uh. quite powerful particularly if you live in a smaller place with not much diversity where you might feel isolated i think you can find some of that uh, community online i think if you go to the dictionary and look up dual-edged sword that's that's the exact thing that they cite as an example of sure it. for sure yeah because <laughs> <laughs> on one side yes that is true on the other side you can also get echo chambers and and i think that is in my mind at least that's more bad than good because yeah i've definitely felt a lot of times in my life that i don't belong and i felt trapped and i felt like i have like few friends or nobody likes me and i've definitely had those times and they're definitely awful but on the flip side this is very easily um, misappropriated or misused where you can get private chat rooms where they become extremely abusive like they they find people to target and they target them at like somebody slighted somebody else and they have uh they get all of the other people in that chat room to go and harass them or something and that's happened so many times in the past and you can also get a lot of um anger which tends to foster and build in these communities so i think in this case some interaction with people who are not like-minded is good because you get to get tempered a little bit your perception of the world gets to get questioned a little bit as well and it doesn't feel amazing but it can be better for society as a whole and it can be better for you as a person as well well so i think the the key thing here is saying it can uh, but it doesn't have to be. So I, I'm not saying it should only be in your echo chamber. All I'm saying is if you are missing that and you're having a lot of the other, then maybe that's a good way to to complement your experiences. Yeah. Yeah. For example, if you're into, I don't know, indie games uh, and there's no one in your neighborhood that's into that, well, maybe you can go and find a group for that. Like it doesn't have to be all about kind of like controversial topics or, you know, things that can generate hatred some of it is just like hobbies and personal interests and i think they can be extremely useful for finding other people that have similar interests to you definitely yeah do you also have the opposite nowadays the world is so much more mobile that people have to move to other cities to other states to other countries other continents even for work for studying whatever it is that it can be very useful to have something to hold on to the old acquaintances that you've gotten um, which obviously you can't do necessarily with a phone, right? And it's much simpler. It becomes so simple to just drop a line to somebody. Oh, hey, how are you doing today? Yeah, for sure. It's interesting. And I, I also see it in, in the opposite direction where you're going to a new community and you don't know anybody. And you can actually join groups that are for that community, maybe meet people through there. You can kind of like get introduced to some folks. I think it can also help with actually helping you settle into a, to a new place as well possibly yeah i can definitely see especially with maybe younger people than us um we're not too old but we've still grown up like we're old enough that our teens was in the old world with without social media we're 32, without, hmm? <laughs> we're 32. right yeah so we've uh, we've grown up in the world that we didn't have social media when we were teens so our interactions, I think, are also built on that foundation because those are your formative years when you're teens and that's how you learn, you know, social behaviors. And now it's it's that different. So you can, you maybe your social media almost becomes part of your personality in a way. Well, it's interesting. I'm not sure how much is it part of your personality. Well, I guess it's like saying that TV is part of our personality. 
It's saying that radio is part of the personality of the generations before us. No, it's different. How so? Because you generate your social media, whereas radio and TV, you can connect with somebody, but you don't generate it. This you mean, is Jonathan. Sorry, you you generate the content? Is yes. that what you mean? Yeah, okay. you're the content to like generator. an authority kind of doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're the content generator. And the reason that that is important is you then judge how that content is being received. If that content is being received well, it's great. But if that content is being received poorly, it's almost a rejection of who you are and what you've done of your work. If you're somebody older, who maybe you're a person in your 40s, 50s, you're used to being questioned, you're used to being attacked professionally, then that may not be such a problem. But if you're a young teen and your friends reject you in that way, that could cause a lot of anxiety. It can, for sure. And we almost have this, it feels like, teens but in all kinds of people have this craving for for attention now because because of the way these these social media networks work with all these followers and likes and um, all these mechanisms that they, they have in their design to encourage you to i guess post more and to seek more people to react and follow you yeah a good person to follow and hmm, a good person to read or listen to about this is called jonathan height and he has a podcast with Joe Rogan and has several books out. He's sort of a semi-media personality. Like He's a scientist who has a media presence, let's put it like that. And he talks about this a lot, like the connection between, for example, depression, mental anxiety, and in young people and the advent of social media. If you go and listen to his Joe Rogan podcast, it's, I think, about two or three hours And he talks about how the number of uh, the amount of anxiety in teens, especially females, and the amount of suicide attempts, etc., has increased steadily since 2011, which is weird because it it didn't used to be the case, especially with Zoomers. So the younger generation, not even millennials. But is social media is social media the cause for that, or are there other factors that are? Well, you can really never know because obviously you cannot have. A controlled lab experiment. But there seems to be a very good correlation between where social media started and the people who were then young enough to have that to be their forming social experience and amounts of depression and anxiety, etc. And the amount the evidence he pulls up is he shows the trend with different age groups, with boys and girls, and he shows the changes with starting 2010, 2011, 2012, in the different age groups. And he talks about historically, and the conclusion that seems to, or not a conclusion, but the hypothesis that seems to be most prevalent at the moment, which in sociology really is the best you can do, is uh, that it, at least in part, it's social media. And it's a relatively high, a big part is social media. So these platforms can definitely be abused. I think um, as a, you know, I'm a digital product designer. And when I think about the way they're designed, at least today, there, there's quite a few traits that these social networks have that can lead to addiction, that can lead to really bad habits and kind of like to, to create this anxiety, to create this craving for acceptance. And that can be definitely detrimental to people. Uh, what that leads to obviously depends on the quantities and like how, how deeply it affects the individual. But there's certainly all these things that you that you see, the, the infinite scroll, the the likes, the followers. I mean, these are things that sort of nudge you to want to do it more. It it gives you the the dopamine hit immediately. 
uh, when you get that positive feedback, but it also can can definitely lead you to to crave it more and more. And it's it's kind of like the way drugs work in a sense, really like a yeah. classic addiction. Yeah, I mean, we're not trying to equate drugs to social media, but yeah, it's a similar pathway, I suppose. Right. It would be good, maybe, for me to share some personal stories in this, just to uh, highlight what you just said, and I'll share a positive and a negative story. And the positive is actually still, and you can maybe hear that I'm smiling at the moment. But the positive is um, I like the Orville, the show The Orville. So I follow it on social media. And they would post occasionally and, you know, people comment. The one time they asked for people to caption a certain picture, I post a joke below it. And the Orville, the official account, found my joke funny because they like liked it and, and laughed at it, etc. So, Congrats. <laughs> yeah, highlight of my year. <laughs> well, it, I definitely felt excited after that because it's not... You know, it's Seth MacFarlane. It's somebody who is typically very funny and is respected to be a very funny guy. And when somebody like that pays attention to you, you definitely feel better. Um, it's the same, I suppose, if you have somebody important in your life or in your circle as well. And then the flip side is, I suppose for me, was when I start, when I decided to stop using social media as much, it was in the beginning of the COVID pandemic. And you see a lot of these posts on both sides, which just took things to a very extreme degree. And initially, my instinct was to argue with everyone because, you know, saying that COVID is related to 5G is not necessarily the best thing to put on the Internet. But after a while, you just notice there's no end to this. And you start really arguing with people and you start insulting each other and it just devolves it was definitely not a fun creative experience and that's when i decided to stop social media yeah it can get aggressive really fast the way yes, information spreads is pretty fast it's like a it could go um quote-unquote viral or you know it's just like uh, it can be i would say it's pretty aggressive right that that's their whole point just to <laughs> to to spread information wait that... what are you talking about can you clarify well so you were talking about sort of this negative conversations that happened getting frustrated. I think since it's online, there's no limit on how many people can get engaged in a given discussion. Um, essentially, it's a catalyst for if you're having a controversial discussion where many people can get pissed off, then it's uh, it can get really amplified and you can see so much negativity and, and anger. And we all know that negative news just spreads faster just because for some reason it just catches our attention more. But essentially, I think social media is really amplifying that. In general, I think there's even several type, several ways that it, it impacts that. Yeah, that's almost a, a podcast on its own because it's a very large topic. And there's a lot of angles to consider as well because there's the angle of individuals amongst themselves and maybe small communities between each other because I've definitely heard of occasions where you have one community going and doing a, a raid, a virtual raid on another community. Like just a bunch of people comment and, and just be mean to another community, go to another community and be mean to be mean. Like, and they pay each other back, etc. And then I think there's also a different effect, which is on media and how media is, how media portrays itself and the types of titles they choose for articles and the type of articles that are written and etc because i think a lot of media nowadays have to also work with the algorithm to be successful 
So what they look at, and I'm not just talking about you know New York Times, obviously. I'm actually even more so talking about independent, internet-only media, which yeah, so rely I think on the algorithm. To be successful, one has to always work with the algorithm of society. And I think now it's in social media, they have their algorithms, but there's always been some sort of an algorithm of sorts that you have to crack in order to to have the bigger reach, to have the bigger success. So to me, I guess to, to some extent, social media is more like, it's really kind of exposing who we always were. Um, you, you gave an example of kind of like one group abusing another group. Uh, I think uh, I'll give you an example of uh, soccer fans. I mean, fans used to do that in person. You know, one fan club can attack another fan club. Uh, we used to do it a lot, actually, with sort of the early days of, of kind of like social media, which was this really rudimentary chat rooms that we had. I think it was called IRC, uh, where we had, you know, I'm a big soccer fan. So we, we had this, you know, team channel, and then some people would go and kind of <laughs> abuse the other team's channel, and then they'll do the other the same to us. And it was kind of like the fan clubs are kind of fighting like that. So I almost saw the same thing translate in social media almost pretty much directly. Like it existed before social media. It just made it, I guess, more visible to us. Now we, we all see that what's happening with all kinds of groups, even if we're very loosely affiliated with them. I agree and disagree with you. Because my inference for what you just said is that there's always been rules and social media has not brought on the changes. They've just exposed them. Would that be correct? Yeah, uh, I would say, yeah, that's part of what I said for sure. And and the other piece is that about the algorithms where, yeah, there's always been some algorithm that you had to figure out as a media company on how to sell papers or how to get to viewers. It's just yeah. now it's different, but it's always existed. Yeah, I agree with you on both, but on the f- I also think that we all have the potential for very extreme good and selflessness and extreme bad and selfishness. And we can all be embodiment of the best and the worst of humanity. I think social media brings out more the worst than the best. To the degree where blind, for example, you talked about, where people can get very insulting for even something that was meant to be an innocent question. Some of it may have to do with a feeling of anonymity. It, it could have to do with assumptions on where the person is coming from. A lot of the subconscious pretext of talking and communication is lost in social media. Sometimes phrasing is is not the greatest. We kind of react very much over the top, much more so than we would in real life. Even if somebody is being bad, I think it's a lot less likely that you'd lash out at them very violently in real life. And I think so not- too. Yeah, it's kind of like um, the consequences are less severe online on social media. So people tend to be more brutal. <laughs> yeah. And that's not to say that people weren't brutal before or people weren't bad before. I mean, we live in one of the most peaceful times in human history, in term, like statistically speaking. So people definitely used to be a lot more brutal. But I think nowadays, a lot of the confrontation is more mental than physical. And there is possibly a lot more of it just because it's so common and it's all against people you don't know or a lot of it is against people you don't know and especially if you use the u.s as an example in the last four years i've had people have talked to me in the university who are republican and they talk about their experience of talking to people 
about politics and they just say, you know, how they have been ostracized. So there is a lot of division in society. So, so you're referring not to universities in the U.S. being yes. generally liberal and then yes. kind of like marginalizing Republicans or conservatives? That's not to say that it's always the case. It's not to say that it's good or bad. It's just a fact. Right? Society at the moment, at least in the U.S., seems to be very divided. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting it's all social media, but there could be an effect of social media there as well. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's definitely divided. But, but yeah, the interesting question is to what extent is social media co contributing to that uh, division and to what extent is it just a result of other, other factors? Maybe things got a bit dark. Yeah. Um, okay, well, to make them a bit lighter, I will talk about my fear because we've been slacking off, or I've been slacking off the last few podcasts, so we haven't really discussed anything about fear. But today I have two very special selections. The first one is sort of Japan-inspired. What attracted me to the beer was the can, and it's called Kawaii with a strawberry vomiting a rainbow. It's a strawberry blackberry pint. It's a double IPA. Nice. No, it's a single IPA, sorry. Sounds and Hawaiian. Pretty nice. It's an IPA. It has raspberry, blueberry, you can blackberry, sorry. You can definitely feel it as well. You can taste it. If you don't like bitter beers, though, this is not the case. And unlike most beers, they have kept a lot of the yeast at the bottom as a precipitate. So you also have to be careful when you drink it. Don't go too big, too fast. <laughs> <laughs> Leave the bottom. <laughs> yeah. Sounds just... interesting. The other pint I have, so the first one is Kawaii. The other pint I have is an oatmeal stout. That's not the best oatmeal stout I've had, but it's it's okay. I can see some people liking it. And it's oatmeal stout with maple syrup and Dutch processed cacao. And what really makes it special is the Dutch processing. Why? I don't know. But they of felt the need to put it on the can. Sorry? Okay. Of course it does. Because I haven't done, like, we haven't talked about beers that much in the last few episodes. I thought I'd go really big. Yeah. Yeah, right on. I'm not, I'm not even drinking at all today. I have a tea no. that actually even just finished. So just water. You're, you're what's known as a tea toddler. Yeah, I'm sick. <laughs> kind of sick-ish. I don't know. But yeah, not drinking beer or any liquor right now. Yeah. One thing that I look forward to doing when you are if we go to Ireland, if we're safe to travel one day, mm. is to go to one of the craft beer festivals together, maybe. We can have like a special episode for that. We can get a two or three day pass and get going. It's usually very good fun. I've been a few times. It's good fun. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Anything sounds awesome right now <laughs> in the middle of this pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not saying much, but it does sound fun. So going yeah. back to social media. Yeah. I think a lot of the hot topics with it lately has been news. Like the social media companies, particularly Facebook and Twitter, kind of became news platforms, right? There's this trending news on Facebook. Um, I think Twitter also has a similar thing like that. Yeah. I mean, in general, news are being published there. They're being discussed there a lot. I mean, the, the term fake news was kind of born recently in the last few years. So what's your take on, on the whole fake news and social media? Are you a bit nervous asking me that? <laughs> Why? <laughs> no, go ahead. Ray and I 
have had quite a few conversations about social media and fake news regulation. It's a very big and very complicated topic, I think. We're also considering doing a special episode on that, maybe be a bit, a little bit more detailed. In the last few years, I've also thought a lot about the topic, and I think it boils down for me to trust. In effect, considering the amount of people that use social media, and that the large, a large proportion of people get their news or their news discussion at least on social media. If you do, give, you remember? Do you remember when that was like funny? Yeah. Tell you like, oh yeah, I get my news on social media. I was like, oh god, like yeah. don't do that. And now everyone's doing that. It just yeah. became like the norm. I think there's a good side of it on the one side because you can go and you you can get specific articles from specific news sources and you can follow them on on social media and you can get updates relatively regularly. So you can stay you can get access to information easily. On the flip side, it all starts getting much more gray when you're talking about them regulating which news sources get on and which articles get shared. I think that for me is a very dangerous thing because you're talking about a private entity regulating what information a large proportion of a popu of, of society gets. Like where you fall on the regulation debate depends how much trust you put on that social media. So you're giving these social platforms the power to decide what a large proportion of society will see and, and will believe as news and from whom they will get their information. If you trust them that in a scenario where their interest conflicts with that of society or even an individual, and they will act for the betterment of society or that individual, if they, if they will be responsible with that power, then I suppose regulation or all of that stuff is not needed. And you can go on and consume it that way. Or if you think that they will misuse the power for personal gain, then obviously regulation would be the way to go for you. And I think that is what that debate boils down to. And I'm talking about the censorship debate. I'm talking about the news debate, like what is fake news, what isn't, because they're very much linked in my mind. Right. So it's almost the definition of fake news is kind of hard, right? Because we, I mean, some things are subjective. You know, it's not like every news is just pure mathematics. There's so many things that are just arguable. Or they could be an article that's kind of based on facts, but really opinionated in the end. And it's kind of really nudging you in some direction. And so the whole concept of fake news is, is very, very complicated matter. And I think the social media platforms are, are super powerful in, in that sense that, like you were kind of mentioning, having such big impact on society and like kind of deciding who sees what. Wow, that's, that's such power that we've never had before almost. You know, it's almost like bigger than US still. <laughs> in its oh, height. definitely bigger. Yeah. It's, it's a huge, huge power. Because U.S. steel, you can buy your steel. And in nowadays, I'm not talking in a historical context. Monopolies are never great for society. But nowadays, you can buy your steel from many places. But you knew, you can technically get your news from many places too. But majority of people, a lot of people, will not go and, and look five hour, for five hours if a certain article is correct or not and what liberties they've taken with the information. Right. So monopolies can certainly be very detrimental to a sector or society. That's why we have laws against monopolies, generally yeah. speaking. I would like to actually give an example of what you talked about, that most of the news is gray. Or, or you didn't say most, but you said a lot. And I, I would say that it is most time what is fake news is very gray. It depends on whom you ask. 
there was a story back, I think last year or the year before. It doesn't matter. But a certain politician in the U.S. was working on reforming the cash bail system in, in a specific state. I'm purposefully not saying which one because I don't want to get into politics at this time. So they were working on reforming the cash bail system. And they said in part, in an interview that the US and the Philippines are the only two countries which have a cash bail system. That is not an exact quote, but that was basically what the quote is. The quote was a little bit more politically charged than that. And that is part of the justification in that interview for changing the bail system. Now, that statement is not necessarily truthful or is not accurate because there is, in fact, many different countries which use a cash bail system. UK, for example, Canada, Australia, there's others. But from a fact checker, they said that that person, the politician's statement was mostly true. And it would have been completely true if the politician had made the statement that the US and Philippines are the only two countries in the world that have a cash bonds system, a professional cash bond system. So people who lend you the money to post bail, which is true. I would say that that statement, that the US and Philippines are the only two countries in the world to have cash bail, is false. It is just not true because the context you're using it in is, I want to reform the cash bail system. If it were about bondsmen, that's a different story, but it wasn't. And yet who decides who decides what's fake and what's real? Well, that's the thing. It's the fact checkers. And there have a lot there've been a lot of instances where fact checkers are not necessarily accurate or rely on opinion pieces or rely on journalists rather than on experts in the area, let's say. So this really touches on even a broader topic, kind of like the infamous section 230 now and how it's pretty hard to to sue any internet company for the content created by its users. Uh, Section 230 is something that was created to, I believe, as an intended to protect the internet, to protect companies from being sued for what their users post, uh, just to kind of like help establish this new model. And can can I expand on that a little bit? Go ahead. Yeah. Section 230 was born out of two lawsuits. The first lawsuit was about uh, a platform which doesn't exist anymore, which did almost nothing to regulate the content on the platform. Uh, and that was that platform was sued for some of their content. And they said, look, you cannot hold us accountable because we're a billboard. We're an internet billboard and we do not edit anything. We're just a platform. The second one is very similar. It's slightly different, but it's a similar circumstance where another platform was sued for being for some of the content on the website, but that platform had moderation. And the judges found in that case that because they moderated and they failed to moderate the specific things that they were sued for, the specific content they were sued for, they were an editor and therefore they were liable. So out of those two, and then further, there is more backstory to it, but it's not important. Basically, out of those two, the Section 230 means if you're an online platform, you cannot be sued for the content that your users post so long as you are, you know, you remove unlawful content such as... um, Right, criminal cases are excluded from Section 230, like pornography and things like that. Even that is, yeah, even that is a little bit murky. And 
Section 230 is a, is very much a live debate at the moment, and even to the point where one of the, I don't remember which ju- Supreme Court judge, ah, Judge Clarence Thomas, who's one of the justices on the Supreme Court of the United States, said that Section 230 is too broadly interpreted by the lower courts, and that they would need a good case to actually reinterpret Section 230 for social media. So that that's the, uh, that's actually the only statement from the United States Supreme Court about Section 230, to my knowledge. So it's definitely that's kind of where I was going with. It, it's very hot debate right now. Should we repeal Section 230, which kind of or cancel it? I guess I'm not sure if the word repeal is correct, but uh, get rid of it. Uh, the Section 230 that protects internet companies. Uh, should we keep it as is and basically state, you know, keep the status quo in a sense like. Um, you know, internet companies are the billboard. They're, they're, you know, they're the platform. They're not really the content creator because their users create the content. Or, and then there's a third camp of people, which is kind of like uh, the least united camp, which is kind of like updating it. Uh, so proposing the update of Section 230 to be different, to do something else. Uh, and that update could mean reinterpretation of it. It could mean actual update uh, to the law. So, so where's your take on this? I definitely think that Session 230 should be revised. Now, whether or not that happens through the courts or through the legislature is a different discussion. But I think having immunity from broad immunity from lawsuits is very strange for a market economy. Because in a way, the government can, comes, in a way, comes in and protects you from what other companies have to fear. How about you? What do you? What is your general feeling on Section 230? Well, so I'm definitely against repealing it altogether and having nothing in place. Because if you can sue a social media, not just social media, but any internet company for what a user posted and hold them liable for that content as if it is their own content, I think that's extremely dangerous. What this will lead to, I believe, is every post that you make uh, whether it's on a social media platform, whether it's a posting on a you posting your apartment on Airbnb, uh, any comment in a forum will have to be reviewed basically by the social media's team before it gets posted. Because if it's considered to be their voice, their own sort of a comment, then they, they cannot possibly allow you to just post it without being reviewed. And that's very difficult to achieve actually technically. I think from a technical perspective, obviously I'm, I'm not an expert in this, but Take it, take it as you will. I do have a degree in computer science and was a software engineer for a handful of years. But essentially, I think it's a technically very challenging problem with, with current technology. Um, unless, yeah, you just slow down everything. I think it, what that will lead to is a lot of these, it, it will prevent innovation. I think a lot of new companies that might start wouldn't, wouldn't be able to afford this. Manually reviewing every post, it will slow things down tremendously. And, and so I think that would lead to actually a lot worse internet. Now, that's if you totally get rid of it and you put nothing in place. I think there's a whole other aspect of this beyond uh, this direct kind of like you can't sue the social media or the internet company for the content of the user. But I think I feel very uncomfortable that you can't sue them for moderating, for how they moderate that content. Because right now they have the full freedom to moderate as they wish. And so they, they have complete freedom and you know as they're becoming more and more powerful and important for society i think it might make some sense to to define certain rules 
of what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. You know, it's just like when you're hiring someone, you, you can't discriminate based on certain factors. But, but social media companies, for example, can discriminate based on, you know, whatever factor they choose, really. It's totally up to them. And, and so I think I have a problem with, with sort of this freedom to moderate as you wish without any consequences. But I do believe in the core purpose of Section 230. Uh, I don't think they should be liable for the content that their users post without any conditions, just like to completely uh, be, be liable for it. So the way I understand you, you basically had three points in what you were saying. And first you were talking about that every post would need to be monitored in order for this to happen. The second one would be that... Repeal, right. <clears throat> yeah, if you repeal it, every post would need to be monitored. The second one would be that that they're free to moderate whatever they want. And the third one is that moderation can happen on any kind of discrimination or any discriminatory... That right, that they could discriminate in certain ways. And and but what I mean really by that is, for example, the, the hot topic today has been with, uh, for example, political affiliation. Uh, you know, a lot of conservatives have spoken against social media companies in particular about being discriminated based on their political views. And so that's kind of like the point I was going for. Yeah. In terms of your first point, I would like to, to note that they actually already do look at a lot of these things. We don't know how these companies work. And I'm talking about YouTube and Facebook and a lot of the big players. We don't know how they work. But what some people suggest is that they already monitor everything because certain videos on YouTube are being gated and forbidden or restricted is the term that uh, that YouTube uses based supposedly only on comments. Because we don't have access to their algorithms and we don't have access to their procedures, it's very hard to judge. But there is definitely that suggestion that YouTube and, and all of these networks already, all these media already monitor everything. So, also, I think just to just clarify what I mean by that is they, they definitely do. Uh, as, as part of trying to enforce their policies, they, they have a combination of, you know, and it depends on which company you're talking about. They have a different combination of people and algorithms that do content moderation, but there is no actual approval process that is mandatory for each post. Um, without Section 230, what I believe would happen is every post will have to be for sure moderated right now. It's not necessarily every post. They're not going through every single post before it actually becomes public. You can post immediately, it becomes public, and then post that due to all kinds of mechanisms, whether it's people reporting the posts or just algorithms picking up words and things like that. They, they do moderation afterwards. So it, there's a fundamental shift in the model that will have to happen. I'm actually not sure about that because I, as part of the research for this, I went on Twitter and I tried to post certain things. And they were not particularly controversial things, but the algorithm definitely stopped me a few times. And it said, oh, you can't post that. Well, it didn't say that, but that was basically that it did not allow me to post certain items. So there so, might be some limited filters. Uh, yeah, that, that's fair. There might be some limited filters for certain uh, very common, uh, it could be abusive language, uh, it could be certain certain things, and those will get better over time. But there, there's certainly... Most of the content, I think you can agree that it's not really moderated on post. I mean, like a fake news, for example. Like they, they can't interpret that at that speed, whether something is fake news or not. They're not doing that. No one is, yeah. No one has that capability at this well, point to, to actually prevent you from posting. Well, I would argue probably what the way they would do is they would just block specific groups of people, specific people. Let's say you have a, a website or a newspaper which is famous as a, as a conspiracy theory farm then 
they would probably just block it out, right? But my argument here, and I'm just trying to play devil's advocate a little bit, is, well, if they already can monitor and if they already have those AIs in place, then why not repeal it? Like, because they cannot be perfect with them. It's incredibly difficult problem to be perfect with. And so that's kind of what we have now. It's imperfect in a sense of they do try to enforce their policies, uh, but it's imperfect. But if you repeal it, that imperfection turns into lawsuits. And it, is it practical to do it or is it not? That's not, the question. Not necessarily, because the way that, for example, defamation lawsuits will be probably a part of this. And the way the defamation lawsuits work at the moment with newspapers is you have to contact them first and say, well, you need, you said this, this is untrue, this statement in your article is untrue, then you need to retract it or update it or issue an apology or whatever it is at the moment, like whatever cure. So you have to try and settle it outside of a courtroom first before you can bring it into a court. Into court. And if you don't, then they, there is a good probability that they will dismiss. And that they would dismiss your lawsuit. And I am talking about the US at the moment, but I think a few other countries have similar provisions. Yeah, I mean, that is an interesting aspect to it. I think still having the resources to deal with that is is very hard. So for a young startup, that can be very, very difficult. Right now, they don't have to deal with that. That dispute does not take place. You don't need lawyers to be leading that. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure the big players are going to be okay either way, to be honest. But I think... It could lead to actually the smaller players not being able to compete really because you still need the legal teams to deal with this. Even if it reaches courts or it doesn't, you still have to respond to these whatever defamation suits, lawsuits or whatever those those could be. And there's a number of different ones, I guess. So yeah, I think I think it will actually think it will change things quite a bit. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I do think that repeal is not a good option. And I do think that even the big players would have a very hard time going with all of this because there's also a lot of people who are politically or otherwise motivated to bring those companies down because they do see those companies as the enemy. And I'm not only talking about conservatives in the United States, which you mentioned, but I'm sure there's a lot of other countries and a lot of other people that for one reason or another do not like social media. Dictators don't for some reason. Well, true, but dictators <laughs> also block them in their countries. <laughs> they, they sure do. <laughs> The other point you talked about is that they moderate freely. I agree with you, but I think that's part of the problem and that they do basically whatever they want and moderate whoever they want based off of very unclear rules. And even part of that is in on YouTube, for example, because I'm more familiar with that platform, people have long suspected that there are certain words that can throttle your video, that, they, that it would not be promoted or it would be restricted. And there, nobody knows those words. And YouTube has even said that they would not release the list of words and a list of guide, of more specific guidelines because they're afraid that people just go around it, which is a problem because it's not like, oh, YouTube, a bunch of teenagers just dancing around and having fun. That's not what YouTube is anymore. And that's not a lot of what social media is anymore. A lot of social media is much more serious. People rely on it for their business, for whatever it is that they do. And it can mean the difference between eating or not. And in some cases, you could have a YouTube channel or a different channel, which has existed for five, 10 years on a certain platform that has been banned outright or, or started having problems and is losing people for no apparent reason because the certain platform changed its algorithm. And now 
their content is not favored. And I think that's a big problem, especially if you have no recourse, no legal recourse. It's a very difficult thing because on one hand, I can see why YouTube does not want to disclose or, or any other uh, platform like that, their algorithm for you know, sort of curating content and like how things go viral or how, how things get shown more to you and why. That's kind of their bread and butter. Like they spend a lot of time on those algorithms and that's sort of their proprietary technology. But then on the other, like you mentioned, it's becoming so important to society of who is on these platforms and who is not. It's almost like if you're not on any of the social media platforms as, as a business or as, a, as an influencer, as a, you know, as a leader, it's almost like you're out of the internet. Maybe that's a little bit extreme, but I feel like they've gained so much power that it, and it's kind of like they, they treat the, the internet as their proprietary technology. It almost feels like that a bit. And, and so it's a, it's very complicated. I think there is a very good example here in Tulsi Gabbard and the Democratic primary this year. And for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about is Tulsi Gabbard was a can- presidential candidate from a Democratic Party in the United States. She made big waves in, I think, the first primary debate where she had several statements which went viral on the internet. And one of the things that she struggled a lot with is that Tulsi Gabbard is not, is, is, does not have the name recognition that somebody like a Joe Biden or a Hillary Clinton would in the United States. So people don't know who she is. And she tried to fix that by having a Google ads account which immediately after that debate, that her statements went viral, was suspended for an unknown reason. Google said that it is a glitch, but considering the timing, Tulsi Gabbard filed a lawsuit about it, and the lawsuit was dismissed. And I'm not saying what that is, that was or is, or I'm not making any comments of it, it just happened, and that's the way it happened. However, you could see in a potential future situation where you have somebody who is controversial, and they are trying to have, they don't have the name recognition and they're trying to get their name out there that if social media bans them and certain ads agencies ban them, for example, Google and Facebook, which almost have a monopoly on ads, then they can't get their name out there. It's not possible. Or at the very least, you get a huge throttle on your company. It certainly feels very scary when you have these social media companies at the center of our political world. We, we saw that with the last election in the United States, uh, Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump 2016, where uh, Facebook was essentially weaponized by, you know, Russian, uh, Russian hackers or rogue, rogue third party to try to influence the election. That's very scary stuff for me. For sure, it's something we need to be really thinking about. We need to make this work because it's, it's becoming to a point where Google or Facebook can, can kind of decide the election. And, not, not p- picking on these two particularly, you know, obviously Twitter has a role in it. Some, some of these have more than others, but more or less the companies Alphabet and, and, and Facebook are essentially super powerful. We can, can tangibly influence elections now. Well, if we even disengage this from companies specifically, where you get your information from is a big factor in your decision making. And having a private enterprise in charge of where you get your information from almost exclusively is not necessarily a good thing. But, but isn't that what we've done with information for a long time, right? Like newspapers are private enterprises. New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, these are all private. I don't think the private itself is the problem here. 
I think the problem is the monopoly. Yeah, you're actually right. Yeah, that's true. Because the argument with, yes, those are private, but then you can have one paper on the one side and another paper on the one other side and some papers in between. Whereas if you start having social media dictate who's on and who's off based off of, oh, that newspaper said this and we don't think the story is true, then obviously that presents a challenge. And an example here would be the Washington, what happened with the Washington Post and the Hunter Biden story, which... Was it New York Post? Yes, the New York Post. Yeah, you're right. Sorry. The New York Post and the Hunter Biden story, where the New York Post was even suspended for sharing it at some point. And and can you remind listeners what that story was about? So we can get banned? We can get banned. <laughs> well... <laughs> Well, I mean, in a nutshell, it was a controversial story in the middle of an election, in the middle of the debates uh, for between uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump, um, 2020 election. And it was, you know, it was it's quite controversial about uh, Joe Biden's son Hunter's relation to, I believe it was a Ukrainian company and uh, kind of like allegedly reporting that he was, uh, I believe it was about taking bribes or it was something uh, shady like that. Well, the information, the story itself was that Hunter Biden had left a specific uh, laptop in a repair shop. Never picked it up. So that laptop, the person, the proprietor, proprietor of the shop had given the laptop to the FBI and had given the some of the information to Rudy Giuliani, who is obviously Trump's lawyer. And that information obviously got released and it seemed to have emails linking Joe Biden, or at least Joe Biden was never named explicitly. Hunter Biden was definitely there in terms of his laptop, his emails. But the emails referred or implied that Joe Biden had part of shady dealings, yeah, with with Ukraine, with some actors in in Russia, with some actors in China. So that was why. Right. So the problem with it, like true or not true, um, or to what extent, uh, who is implied what. Um, the problem was that the New York Post is a big publication. Um, it's one of the, I think, biggest circulation newspapers in the country. I think and, it's also one of the oldest. Yeah, and and that that article was taken down. And so <laughs> at, at this point, you have a kind of a reputable publication's voice is being muted. Now, I'm not saying the article was right or it's not right or... That is, I think, not quite fully determined, but it's there didn't the seem well. to be. It, it was a very strange thing to do because it is a reputable source. It wasn't like some random person posted it and they could kind of clearly prove that that was wrong information. A lot of people were under the impression that this was a real case. You know, it was a real hard drive. It was a real, it was Hunter Biden's laptop because of the reputation of the New York Post. And so it was a very controversial thing that they. They just got rid of that story and completely <laughs> muted that newspaper. There was two angles to this. So the way, the reason they said they did it, and that it changed a few times what they say they did it, but one of them was that they said that there were reputable sources or ex-intelligence officials who said this has all the this story has all the hallmarks of foreign of a foreign disinformation campaign. On the flip side, a lot of current intelligence officials said that it isn't or it doesn't look like it is. And the other one was that some social media websites also cited that it was hacked information 
or that it was not necessarily it lacked sourcing so that's why they removed it 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 uh, violated the terms of service in that way and so i guess the the, the main problem i have with this whole thing is that uh, you know the decider of that you know it's a, it's a it's a good example it's a, it's a very complicated matter we don't really know uh, meaning us the general public uh, whether to trust or not some people will trust the article probably other people probably will not trust it for whatever reasons but but you have this gatekeeper that's kind of operating in this gray territory and making a very strong decision very swiftly in the middle of the presidential election so wow that's that's a lot of power and even if i if we abstract ourselves from this particular example and maybe talk about a hypothetical case where you have a senator, for example, who wants to regulate social media. Well, would social media then censor them and act in a way against that person getting their message out there? I mean, who knows? They can do whatever they want, right? (laughs) So this topic was definitely deep, (laughs) controversial. I think we wouldn't be fair if we talk about uh, one more thing about social media. And I think sort of the business side of it, um, influencers. And I think it's, it's definitely something fascinating about it. I would say we see people with talent being able to reach uh, reach all kinds of uh, customers, reach uh, all kinds of opportunities. I think that's been one side that has been absolutely amazing. Um, being able to just showcase your talents and, and get opportunities that you would never have access to without those social media networks. I believe that's how Justin Bieber got discovered, isn't it? That he was a kid and he just posted a lot of videos of himself playing songs online and Usher discovered him that way. Or he was recommended to Usher and then Usher discovered him. Wasn't that the way? I don't know. I just know that Usher was involved. But <laughs> I don't know how that went down. But I can I can believe it. I mean, it's happening for sure. It's happening to a lot of folks nowadays. It's... It's it's the new way to discover talent, I think, in, in some ways. That and America's Got Talent. It's the two America's major. America's Got Talent. <laughs> reality shows. I mean, it's kind of like a reality show that you create, that you you do the casting for. In a way, it's the biggest reality show. I mean, yeah. There was one recently that where it was kind of like, a, well, I don't know what's recent anymore with COVID. Kind of losing sense of time. But there was this, uh, this dude that did... Uh, uh, kind of like some Disney Marvel characters kind of like really showed some cool visual effects and animation skills. And I believe he got picked up by Disney to do work for them after he went viral on social media. So that's kind of like a sort of the Cinderella story. of You know, you just kind of showcase your talent and your dream company picks you up to do work for them. There's definitely a lot of other things. For example, there are some YouTubers or YouTube channels which do a lot of this stuff as well. And there's a lot of promo work going on there where a lot of big companies reach out, whether it be for reviews or uh, to to partner with them to do promo work. There's definitely a lot of very interesting stuff there for personal development. For sure. I mean, I love the fact that we have these niches kind of emerge. Before with TV, with, you know, just Hollywood, the traditional routes of sort of these big, I don't know, kind of like a big opportunity givers have to discover you. It tended to be um, less diverse in terms of, uh, for example, 
I don't know, the, just the TV shows, for example. Um, I'm what interested do you mean in... By, sorry, what do you mean by diverse in this case? Yeah, I'm going to explain. Yeah, so it's looking at, for example, I'm interested in watching shows about creative entrepreneurs. That is normally kind of a niche field because entrepreneurship is already a niche and you put creative entrepreneurs inside of it. Like by creative, I mean, it's kind of like a term for meaning people that work in creative fields like designers and artists, photographers. And so that type of a show generally, you know, there wasn't really anything like it uh, on traditional TV um, just because it's kind of like, I think, a niche audience. So TV tends to be more around like, okay, what's the biggest audience we can get? Um, because they make a big investment and it's a big risk and all that. And you can kind of understand their model. But through social media and these content platforms online, what you're seeing is you're seeing a lot of diversity in terms of niche target audiences and niche target types of content. And so I love that, that I can sort of find the type of content I really like because there's that diversity of content. It's really more going towards, I guess, the I would say the content platform side of it rather than social media side of it. But as I kind of mentioned earlier, I do see the two interplay together in this internet world. So I think that's great. You get a lot of different comedies and styles of comedy. I enjoy a good laugh as much as the next guy, maybe even more. And in terms of Hollywood and a lot of the series, you get very specific types of humor and you very often get the same things going on and on and on again because it's the same people in the background, the same writers, same uh, people with comedic talent who are the big players in the field. Whereas because social media has had this kind of more democratization effect on entertainment, you get a lot of different points of view and a lot of different types of humor as well. And some of it is very much a miss, but in a way, it's maybe the best way to do comedy because you do a comedy for a very specific audience, which may not have been catered for. And it doesn't necessarily all have to be for, for me or for everybody, but you get a lot more of what you would enjoy and what you would find funny yourself. Yeah, in many ways, these sort of indie creators or, you know, smaller, non, not, I guess, yeah, just smaller, more independent, uh, tend to be more out of the beaten path. Creators are still thriving. Now on social media, throughout history, those have been kind of like emerged and get squished by big, big box competitors in many industries. But we're still seeing it in in social media. It's kind of like uh, I don't I don't know if they're winning necessarily, but they're they're definitely there. They're part of the ecosystem. They found a voice in a way. I mean, if I have to conclude on one big positive for social media, I'd say it's definitely the democratization of a lot of entertainment. And, and the ability for somebody who is independent to get the message and the word out there for themselves and fight for themselves. Because in the old world, that was not possible. Not at all. Yeah, I mean, even I would even go further than entertainment, but, you know, information. Uh, it could be educational. Uh, you could follow experts in certain fields that you couldn't imagine having access to in the past. Uh, it's definitely been uh, super game-changing for a lot of, like, different different fields and different people. Yeah, and it gives an alternative to some as well, where, for example, if you're somebody who loves science but doesn't necessarily want to, to work in science, in academia or in industry, you're just like talking about it, discussing it, looking at it, looking at news. It gives you a new avenue of where to explore and you can, get, you can become an educational channel. And there's certainly some uh, very good education channels out there. 
Right, it's an alternative path. Yeah, and the other thing is, well, a lot of those channels, I think, are very good at conveying information in a, in a sort of succinct way. So for the listener, they get access to a ton more information. And of course, you get the TikTok dances. Those are awesome. We should do a TikTok dance. Maybe not, but anyways, <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> is there anything else you have in mind we want to talk about? I think that's it. Seems like that topic uh, is never ending. There's so many aspects to it because it's, it's such a central piece to society now. So I'm sure we'll be revisiting in the future as well. If it were one takeaway message for me, it would be like it or hate it, social media is here to stay. It's not going away. For me, it's really like uh, kind of makes me think of Spider-Man. You know, with big power comes big responsibility. Oh, yeah. definitely. Yeah. That's how I think about them right now. They're definitely, definitely got the power. Well, I'm sure we'll do future podcasts on the topic, so stay tuned for that. I especially want to do one on the business model and talk about maybe some other aspects of social media design in the near future. But for now, I think we'll stop it here. So thank you for listening and remember to follow us on social media. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate us, like, and share. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, where we are at Pine Talks. From the whole Pine Talks team, we hope you have an awesome day.